Amen. If you have your Bibles tonight, and I hope that you will, find the book of Joel. The book of Joel. It is the second book in the list of minor prophets in the Old Testament. A few weeks ago when I was here with you, we started this series of an overview of each of the books of the uh, minor prophets. I want to thank Brother Larry for uh, uh, being willing to fill in the last two Wednesday nights. Uh, he was scheduled for last Wednesday night, uh, and then the first week I hit him in the hallway and said, hey, and he said, sure, and so I want to just thank him for that. I thought he did a wonderful job uh, the last two Sunday nights, and so hopefully you will thank him as well. The book of Joel is a, a short book, but it is a very powerful book. Uh, really, the theme of the book of Joel is a very simple theme. It is a theme that is found throughout the entire Word of God. And it is this, that we are sinners and that God has a great love and a desire to forgive sinners. But in order to be forgiven by God, we must repent. And all of the blessings that come with salvation that come with forgiveness, that come with the constant refreshing as a believer, hinge upon God's people being willing to repent. And let's just be honest tonight. Uh, I like to think we are one of the most conservative Baptist churches I know. Uh, we are pretty old-fashioned. We're pretty closed-minded sometimes, and I'm okay with most of those things. Um, but what I can tell you is even... In a church like this, repentance causes us to squirm. We'd much rather go to another women's conference, or we'd rather never go to a men's conference, or we'd rather have this or that. But every problem the church faces, every problem that a marriage faces, every problem that a home faces could truly be resolved if God's people would repent. Genuine, real honest repentance. Let's all be honest. We make excuses. We can explain things away. But truly, if we want a time of refreshing coming from God, it requires repentance. And why repentance is so hard is because we're wicked. The Bible says we are wicked. You can try to clean it up. You can try to dress it up. You can try to explain it away like Joel or some of them other television preachers do. But the Bible teaches us that we are wicked and that our hearts are deceptively wicked, that we are wicked to the core. But yet, even because of that, God loves us. And God wants a relationship with us. And I'll be honest, I don't like going to the doctor. I don't want to go to the doctor because they always tell me two things. Stop eating as much and start exercising. I know that before I get there. It's not lost on me, all right? I know that the front porch has become a wraparound. I know that, all right? But when you hear him say it, it's just like, what do you say? And I always say something like this. I'm ready to go. I'm getting a new body. I'm I'm good. I appreciate your concern, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And you say, well, that's a wonderful opportunity to witness. It's really not because I'm not using it for the right reason. I'm using it to get my doctor to leave me alone. And it's the same way with sin. 
We can talk about our marriages. And yes, I wish my spouse would do this, or I wish my spouse would do that. But honestly, if we want to get really down to it, we really need to get honest about what is in my life as a spouse that's sin. We like to blame our problems on our children or children on the parents, but truly, when we get down to it, there is usually some sin that we are not wanting to deal with. You look at church and the lack of commitment. You look at church and the lack of worship and and all of these things that go on and we can make excuses that we're more busy than we used to be or, or you don't have to be there as much as all of these things. And they all sound great and they all sound wonderful, but at the heart of the issue is always we are trying to explain away sin had this conversation yesterday with a pastor and I. We were talking about church and he said, what do you think the greatest problem facing the church is? I said, it's sin. It's always sin. And he said, which sin do you think is most specific? And I'm like, I'm not waiting into that because I can promise you it'll be on Facebook that Jake thinks the greatest problem in the church today is someone's sin and then someone's like, well, that's my sin. And so I, you know, I think I picked something like, well, I'm just, I think sexual sin is probably the one that is I see as a great danger right now in the church today because of the issues of pornography, the issues of sex outside of marriage, and et cetera. And um, the response was, well, I let the Holy Spirit convict people. Well, I said, well, that's a good thing because that's literally what the Bible says his job is, is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But I said, have you ever had it go on in your church when you actually went and talked to somebody? Oh, no. No, I don't believe in that. I said, well, I read in my same Bible that in the book of Matthew chapter 18 says, if your brother sins against you or is living in sin, you're to go to them in love. And and if they don't listen, you go two or three. And and if they still won't listen, then you're supposed to have a a church-wide discussion. Well, that doesn't work. That doesn't happen. And I said, maybe it is because we are making excuses for the sins we do not want to deal with. And so when we come to the book of Joel, I want to read from you Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and through 14, because what you're saying is, man, this is going to be depressing. This is going to be discouraging. This is going to be hard. Not when you realize what God wants to do in your life and in my life when we repent. Yes, sin is horrible. Yes, being called wicked is difficult. Understanding, though, that God has a desire to forgive that God does not want to destroy, that God is going to judge the lost. But for those of us who love God, repentance is a beautiful thing. And so if you would stand with me out of a reverence to the reading of God's Word in Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 12, it says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. That means all of it. You can't keep part of it back. You can't explain a part of it away. With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And He relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Pray with me tonight. Father, we thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace. 
Father, tonight I pray that this would be a time where you would search each and every one of us, Lord, that you would get into the very corners of our heart, Lord, the very excuses that we make, the very sins that we explain away, Lord, and truly bring conviction, Lord, and repentance and and brokenness to this place. Father, help us be a people that do not explain our sin away, but let you wash it away. Father, thank you for the wonderful privilege to preach. God, you know I add nothing. I can do nothing. I just pray that I will not quench or grieve your spirit tonight as you are at work. And Lord, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So hopefully you see from these verses what God wants to do. God wants us to return to Him. And in the situation of the book of Joel, we really don't know anything about the author. We really don't even know exactly when it was written. And we don't even talk about any specific sin that the nation of Israel has dealt with. He is just telling them that you know what you've done. You and I know how we have broken God's law. How we have rebelled against Him. But God wants us to return to Him. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but there have been some people that hurt me that I didn't want to return to me. I was good with them leaving me alone and never speaking to me again. Now, I know you would never say that because you're really spiritual and really wonderful and really kind, but I'm going to tell you, I've seen people walk out the door that I, that I said, don't let the door hit you where the good Lord, you know, all those kind of things. I, I've felt that way before. I, I know that's my heart, and if someone becomes a burden enough, I'm just like, hey, go be someone else's problem. Some of your spouses probably think that, right? I took them off their mother's hand, and that's the biggest problem I've ever had. But what we see here in this passage of Scripture is that God wants you to return. And tonight, if you're here and you are living in sin, and tonight if you're here and you've heard someone preach something like this, and and you've fallen under conviction, know that God is not doing that to drive you away. God is not doing that to bring guilt and shame. God wants a reunion. God wants you to return to Him. And if you miss that in the sermon tonight, you will miss the whole point. That God wants the prodigal to come home. God wants the rebel to submit. God wants the wanderer to come home. And it tells us why He wants that. For He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. You see, that's the great problem that we fall in as humans. We love to correct people, but it's not always out of a love for them. Sometimes our motives are selfish. Our motives are prideful. Our motives are arrogance. Sometimes our motive is self-righteous. But with God... Every time He corrects, it is out of a perfect love for you. You say, Jay, God's just really been dealing with me lately. He's been stepping all over my toes. God's desire is not to step on your toes. It's to bring your rebellious heart back. It's to bring your wandering spirit back. And so we've got to get away from this idea that, oh, it's a hard sermon this morning. Boy, I can't hardly listen to that. That's not what God wants for you. God wants His Word to set you free. God wants the preaching of His Word and the conviction of the Holy Spirit to show you that the mess you and I are living in isn't what God wants for us. 
And the joy that we think that sin brings to us is not the joy that God has for us. That God has a purpose to break the shackles and the chain and the baggage of what we're carrying away from us. That is God's desire for His people. To be conformed to the image of His Son. To have the peace and the joy. And what God knows is sin will rob you of that. I am an extremely anxious person over stuff that doesn't matter. Most things don't bother me. But when I was in high school before every ball game, I would open up and close my uniform bag like 758 times to make sure white pants, white top. Green pants, green top. Both of my shoot-around shirts. All shoes. Because my greatest fear in life was to get to a ball game and be missing something. I mean, I would open it, close it, open it, and close it. And so I recently took my daughter to a ball game. And I said, you need to zip your backpack up. She goes, I can't. I said, zip the thing up before something falls out. She goes, I can't. I said, what's wrong with you? She goes, I have to sit here and check it over and over again and make sure white and white and green and green is used. I said, that's so weird. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I thought, she gets that from her mother. <laughs> no, no, I knew exactly. But that is my fear. The same way with going on the airplane to Phoenix. And, and I was terrified that I had forgot something. Then I was terrified that my carry-on was going to be too big. And so I'm measuring it at home, and I'm measuring it at home, and I'm opening it, and I'm closing it. And I stop halfway to St. Louis and check it again. And I go to Walmart and buy extra stuff just because what happens if your owner just magically blows up in your backpack, right? And you, you can't. Those kind of things that don't matter. I'm just like a, I'm like a, just a, like a fat kid in a candy store. I'm just so, so excited, right? And in my life, I've had to be reminded that those things don't matter. That those things aren't important. But it is so important for you and I to realize that we all have real struggles. We all have real issues. And what we forget is that while we stress over things because we think we're going to lose something, we stress over what it's going to cost us. We never think that when God asks us to lay aside something, to step out in faith, that what God has in store for us will bring us more fulfillment than what we had. Now, I didn't say happiness like Joel would say, all right? Because sometimes God will take you from where is comfortable and enjoyable into a fire. Sometimes God will allow you to be thrown into the lion's den like Daniel. Sometimes God will allow you to be thrown into the fire like the three Hebrew boys. God doesn't always take you from a life of comfort and joy and to put you into a place of happiness, but where He will put you and what He will replace it with is contentment. A real identity of purpose that I'm where God wants me to be. I'm doing what God has called me to do and God can work in my life. And so with all that said, now we're going to jump in in the overview of this book. So in chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, we're not going to read them all. Do not freak out. We see that there is a current judgment and a need to repent. What is going on is there has been a great locust infestation in Israel. And Joel has been told from the Lord that it is because of their sin. We always must be careful not to attribute to things to God that He has not told us are His. But yet we also must be very careful not to explain away God's judgment. 
But in verses 1 and 2 through 5 of chapter 1, it says, Hear this, you elders. He's talking to the spiritual and national leaders of a nation. And give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days? Or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, a swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine. Because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. So what he's really saying is everything that was green, everything that was lush, everything that was edible and beneficial had been sucked dry. And he says this because it's very important that when you read the Bible, a plague of locusts should cause you to remember something. In the book of Exodus, chapter 20, chapter 10, as the children of Israel are in bondage, and God has sent Moses to Egypt, one of the plagues was what? Locust. You see, God sent locusts when they were in bondage to set them free. When they were free from Egypt but in bondage of sin, God sent that same locust as judgment and correction. You see, God can use the same thing in your life to set you free or to bring you correction. You say, well, Jake, I don't understand why I lost a loved one. I don't understand why I got this diagnosis. I don't understand why I have went through this. Maybe God is trying to set you free from something that's going on in your life or He might be correcting you. But for a child of God, when your greatest hero is Moses in the Old Testament... The greatest moment of God's blessing in the Old Testament for most of these people was the deliverance of them from slavery. That one of the same things that God used against the hard-hearted and wicked Pharaoh was now being used against them. It's this reminder that just because we claim to be God's doesn't mean that God is blessing us. Sometimes God loves us enough to correct us. In Exodus chapter 10, if you want to read this with me in verses 12 through 15, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locust, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land, and all that day and all that night, when it was morning, the east wind brought the locust. And the locust went all over the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previous there had been no such locust as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened. And they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Up until the book of Joel and whenever this was, when you read this story, it was all about deliverance. 
But once the people in Joel's day began to realize and read this, they would have thought, wait a second. What has been done to set us free is now done for correction. I think that about America today. You say it's political, it's not. You can take it for what it's worth. God has blessed America second only to Israel in human history. And the very principles that God allowed us to have that blessed this nation, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, religious freedom, all of these things that were the foundation of this great country, the things that God used for us to be a blessing, wealth, to be able to send missionaries to all corners of the earth, the freedom to print Christian literature, to send missionaries, to to build churches, to build homeless shelters and missions. Those same freedoms are now being used by the wicked to justify the sin and wickedness of this world. Things like homosexual marriage, things like abortion, things like transgender, all of this nonsense that God's Word has clearly taught is now being used under the same blanket of things that we would have considered great blessings. The freedom of religion has now become the freedom from religion. And what we need to recognize is this. What God used to bless us at one point, when a nation abandons Him, He will use those same things to destroy. You think about the great wealth and prosperity that God has brought upon this nation. And before you quote some ill-fated verse that's not in the Bible, it says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is not evil, but greed will lead you astray. We have now become a nation that is so greedy and so envious and covetous that no one can have things without someone else wanting them. Certain people have decided that they can get rich no matter what it costs. And that same wealth and freedom and privilege that God gave us as a nation is being used to bring judgment on ourselves. And what you and I should look at and say, we've seen this before. We are reading this in the book of Joel. When a nation that is blessed by God forgets, by, forgets their God, God's decide that it's time for correction. You say, that doesn't apply to me, Jake. I'm a believer. Listen, God will correct you the same way. If you're like me, you love the local church. The local church is not perfect. The local church has problems. And many times I think I'd rather go to a local church where I didn't know anyone. And they didn't know me. But I tell you what, there is no place specialer to me than the local church. To watch people saved, to watch people baptized, to watch relationships and all the things that go on with church, I love it. Love everything about church. But how many times does church become our idol? The church becomes more important than the one who built the church. The one who grows the church. The one who died for the church. I love church buildings. I am a creepy person. If I go to a new church, I want to see all of it. I want to walk through every bit of it. I want to see the baptismal bathrooms. I want to see the baptismal pool. I want to see it all. Store closet, I want to see it all. I love church buildings. But how many times do church buildings become more important than the builder of the church? You see, the things that God uses to bless us can be turned to be the things that correct us. 
Second thing I want to show you from this passage of Scripture and from this book is that not only do we see a current plan of judgment, but we see that God had a future judgment in store. In Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, you can read that on your own. But in Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 10, the Bible says, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before His army, for His camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes His word, for the day of the Lord is great and terrible. Who can endure it? If you read the book of Joel, you will see this phrase, the day of the Lord. You can find it numerous places in the Old Testament. And it is always synonymous with God intervening in a mighty way, either to judge His people, to correct people, It's very often associated with great earthly difficulties like earthquakes and the judgment of God. But what we see here is that the Lord is not only talking about the judgment they are facing, but He's beginning to prophesy about things that are going to happen at the end of time. And this is very difficult because everyone has a different opinion about this. But what I want you to see though, that even in this time of great difficulty, even this time of great spiritual wickedness, that God is asking them a question, who can endure it? And the answer to that question is, on our own, no one. The sin will be too great, the rebellion will be too great, the corruption will be too great. But it also should bring us to a place of hope. In the book of Exodus chapter 34, If you remember in Exodus chapter 32, the children of Israel decided to go crazy and create a golden calf and to worship that golden calf. Moses comes down on the mountain, he breaks the tablets and and this whole escapade goes on, you know, God tells them to move on and we ain't moving on without you, Lord. And so in chapter 34, uh, Moses goes back up onto the mountain, God gives him the the commandments again. But in verses 5 through 7, I want you to hear the Lord's words to this nation who has just been blessed by God, but has already decided to run from Him, decided to worship this golden calf. But yet they have repented. They have confessed their sins. And in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, it says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God. Just stop right there. Because most of us are thinking, God's going to tell them they're wicked, they're corrupt, they're evil. How can you make a golden calf after you just walked across dry land? How can you be murmuring and complaining after the ten plagues that set you free? How? But listen to what God said. The Lord the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third fourth generation. God says, I'm merciful. I am willing to forgive. 
I am long-suffering when you stumble. I am gracious when you fall. I have a desire to forgive and to work and to move and to do all of these things. But don't forget, the guilty will be punished. You see, we read this and we should immediately go to the New Testament. And there's a story in the New Testament where a woman is caught in adultery. The group of people decide they're going to bring her to Jesus and get him to stone her because that is the commanded Old Testament uh, punishment for this sin. Jesus begins to write in the ground. We don't know. I'm not going to speculate. I'm not a television preacher. I'm not adding to the scriptures, all right? But we know one by one they all leave and Jesus looks at her. Who, who is here to condemn you? And then he tells her, get up and sin no more. God is saying that He will forgive us for our sins and our wickedness. God will restore our brokenness. God will bring joy when there is no joy. But do not ever think that God will overlook those who do not repent. That don't seek Him. And so when we look at couples today, and I'll just use this one because it's one that has been a a conversation like eight times this week. get a lot of flack for the weddings I don't do. I don't do very many of them, don't want to do them. Find someone else. But someone asked me this week, they said, Jake, we would like to get married. We're living together, we're sleeping together. And they said, we would like to get married. And I said, well, the first question I have is, has the Spirit of God convicted you that this is wrong? Yes. Well, are you willing to repent and move apart for a short period of time until you get married? No. No, we're not. I said, well, what has happened is conviction has set in. You are remorseful for your sin, but you have not repented of your sin. And slapping a marriage certificate in your house on your wall does not mean you are forgiven. It means you are sinning no more, but you have never been forgiven for your sin. One of the greatest moments in my ministry here at 10 Mile was when I had this conversation with a couple, and they said, we will. And I'm not going to lie to you, I've not been shocked very many times as a pastor, but I almost fell out of my chair. Fell backwards. And I thought, you will? (laughs) Yeah, I'll stay in the camper. She can stay in the house. And what I thought in that moment is that's repentance. When God convicts us of our sin, we admit our sin and we turn from our sin. People tell me all the time, Jake, I know we ought to be in church, but you know, I got my kids signed up for this and I got my kids signed up for that and I hate it. And what I tell people is convictions there. Remorse is there, but repentance is not there. Because repentance is always admitting my sin and turning from it. You say, oh, I don't like gossip, Jake. I don't like to be in... When someone tells you they don't like gossip and don't like to be involved in it, they're the world's worst. Let's just tell you. Someone tells you they don't like gluttony, they're the world's worst, all right? But friends, you can hate it. You can feel bad for it. But if you're not willing to turn from it. It's not repentance. You are not right with God. 
And my great challenge to this church is sermons are wonderful, music is wonderful, conviction is wonderful, but at some point it has to lead to repentance. If you and I want the freedom, if you and I want to be set free, if we want to stop grieving the Spirit in worship, if we want to stop quenching the Spirit in our Sunday school class, someone has to say, I am not going this way anymore. God, I know it's you. I know what you want for me. And I'm not going this way anymore. I am remorseful that I am overweight. I hate for my children to say, Dad, you're going to die early because you're overweight. But I'm not really repentant over it. Because if I was, after that second plate, let's not get over ambitious here, right? I would shut her down and say, I'm not going to eat anymore. I have no medical condition that makes me fat other than the fact that I eat too much. I know some people have real struggles and they put on weight and they can't get rid of it. My wife's got a thyroid issue, but she's not overweight. Please, let's be clear. She's not overweight, but she has a thyroid issue, and I know that can cause that. She doesn't have that problem, okay? That was close. I have no medical condition that makes me fat other than the fact that I love food and hate exercise. That's it. But if I really cared that much about it, I'd stop. It's that simple. You say, Jake, the Christian faith is not that easy. I didn't say it was easy, but it is that simple. You say, Jake, I, 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 just, I, I live with a wife that's stubborn and she won't listen and she won't. It's sin. Your wife says, husband, I want you to lead and, and be the head of our household. I want you to, to be the spiritual man that God wants you to be. And if you won't be it, it's sin. And you can go to every conference, you can go to every bookstore, but until repentance happens and says, I am not going to be a deadbeat dad, I'm not going to be a deadbeat husband, I'm not going to waste the privilege that God has given me, I'm going to ask God to forgive me, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to be who God wants me to be. That's why the Bible says, honor your father and mother. And kids say, well, my parents don't know anything, or my kids are this, and my kids are that. God didn't ask for your explanation of why you rebel. He said, obey your father and mother. Adults, I would caution you that if your parents are still alive, that applies to you too. Last thing, because I'm running out of time and I've already made everyone mad in here. So, especially the internet people, they're not near as spiritual as you all are. I'm kidding. Third and final thing in this book, verses 18 through the end of the book, God's future plan to restore and provide for his own people. This book was written to the nation of Israel. It is applicable to our lives, but it is written to the people of God in the Old Testament. And so when he talks about restoring his own, I believe he is talking about the millennial kingdom. You say, Jake, I don't believe the millennial kingdom. It's only one place in the New Testament. I believe you are sadly mistaken. Because the book of Joel talks about the fact that God's coming back, setting himself up in Jerusalem, and he's going to rule and reign. And he's going to make things right. But starting in verse 18, and I'll just explain this and we'll be done very quickly, Lord willing. Then the Lord will be zealous for His land and pity His people. The Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. God is merciful. He's showing them, I am going to show you mercy. 
even though you've wandered, even though you've strayed, even though you rejected the Messiah, I have a plan for you. In verses 20 through 21, we see that God defeats His enemies. He doesn't just talk a good game. He does what He promised. But I will remove far from you the northern army, and I will drive him away into a barren and desolate land. With his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea, his stench will come up, and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. God has mercy on them. He delivers them from their enemies. But then he begins to restore the land, starting in verse 22. Do not be afraid, you beast of the fields, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine yields their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given you the former rain faithfully, and He will cause the rain to come down for you. The former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and with my people shall never be put to shame. He says all the blessings that the locust, and then in chapter 2, the army that is representing the locust has destroyed, I'm going to restore that back to you. The land that has been destroyed, the, the country that has been consumed, that will be restored to my people. And then in verse 27, it gives us some of the most great and wonderful teaching about the millennial kingdom then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. And I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. Some people like to view this as the Holy Spirit, but yet in Joel 2, verses 28 through 32, he begins to talk about the outpouring of his Spirit. And the Apostle Peter references that in the book of Acts. But here he's talking about being in the midst of them. I believe this is when the temple is rebuilt and the Lord reigns on this earth for 1,000 years among His people. My people shall never be put to shame. It has not been fulfilled yet because the Jewish people are still being put to shame. But I want to close with this. While this is a book of judgment, while this is a book of correction, it is a book that gives great hope that the mess we are in does not have to be the mess that we stay in. And even though we might have brought sin and division and discouragement into our life, into our marriage, and into our home, that God has a plan to restore. And in Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 28, I believe you saw a taste of this at the day of Pentecost, but yet it will be truly fulfilled in that kingdom. And it shall... Come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. 
And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be dark, turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of that great and awesome day of the Lord. In verse 32, a beautiful verse. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. As the Lord has said among the remnant who the Lord calls. Now what this means is if you're living in a country, think about the country of Ukraine right now. And you see these pictures of homes and fields and businesses gone, destroyed. They are dead in the street. And in that moment, someone stands up and prophesies and says, this is the judgment of God. I'm not saying it is. I'm just using it as an example. And you realize, I can't believe it's this bad. This is awful. This is terrible. And then that same prophet says, but hey, there's another day that's going to be even worse than this. And you're thinking, oh, what? I hope I'm not around for that one. And then he says, but wait. Even though it's going to be bad, there's going to be someone who comes back and makes it all right. Who restores what has been stolen. Who restores what has been broken. Who repairs what has been damaged. And most people say, well, the United States government's going to bail us out. It ain't the United States government this time. It's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is coming to set everything right. But what is assumed in this book is repentance. It's assumed that the people of God are going to repent. For instance, at the three and a half point, three and a half year point of the Great Tribulation, when the Jewish people turn to the Lord instead of the Antichrist, a great time of repentance. As a church, are we going to repent or are we going to be the same that we've always been? As a husband, am I going to repent? And watch God do amazing things in my home. And as an individual, am I going to repent? And watch what God can do in my life. Because friend, the mess is guaranteed. Sin is guaranteed in your life as long as you are alive. You're going to struggle with it. You're going to battle with it. You're going to have to crucify your flesh every day. And friends, if you don't get to experience the forgiveness, it will consume you. It will drain you. Most Christians cannot believe that God would forgive them. That's why we don't have any joy in church. Psalms 47 says, clap, shout, rejoice for the Lord. You say, I don't believe in doing that. Well, then you argue with the writer of Psalms. That's for performing, it's faking it. No, it isn't. Not if there's just joy overflowing. Some of you could use it. Some of you says the Spirit's working on you. You're explaining that on heartburn. It's not heartburn. The Lord's trying to do something in you. But friends, if you don't believe that restoration and forgiving is coming, then you will always be consumed by your failures. And what God wants you to know tonight is He knows you have failed, but He still calls you His own. He knows that you have stumbled, but He still has secured you in the palm of His hand. He knows that you have wandered and strayed and faltered, but He has never erased your name from the Lamb's book of life. And so tonight the great challenge is live in the forgiveness that you can experience if you and I will just repent and get right with Him.
Father, tonight we thank you for your word. Lord, I know I haven't done it justice. I know there's so much I would have liked to cover that we just don't have time to do. Father, I do pray tonight, Lord, that this group of people, those watching online, Lord, would hear the true message that you want to restore, that you want to forgive. But God, convict us, deal with us, draw us, show us, Lord, that it only comes once repentance happens. And so, Lord, tonight, give us the courage to repent. Lord, give us the conviction, the integrity. Lord, give us the humility, the brokenness, that the sin in our life is no longer tolerated. But tonight, God, I want you to set me free for whatever it is that's holding me back, whatever it is that's, that's consuming my heart. Tonight, Lord, wash it all away. And God, I give you all the praise and the honor and the glory. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.